You know, Andrew, this uh, this interview has been just like a restorative justice meeting, hasn't it? <laughs> because um, the, your skills, my presence, all, all working together in bringing different things to uh, to the discussion. Yeah, it's, it's fabulous. It is. Really it's, good. it's that process of co-facilitation in action. Isn't yeah, it? the yin I and the yang, so. and the way you uh, bounce off each other and reinforce each other. That, that brings that synergy, and that's that's what I love about co-facilitation. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second episode of Restorative Conversations, the new podcast series brought to you by the Community of Restorative Researchers. The purpose of the community is to promote an open and critical dialogue within the field of restorative practice and to enhance communication and collaboration between researchers, practitioners, and others involved in restorative practices in different capacities in order to maximize the benefits and minimize the risks of their growing use. My name is Ian Martyr, and I'm the founder of the community with a day job of lecturing and conducting research for my PhD on restorative justice at the University of Leeds. In these podcasts, I'll be speaking to prominent individuals from academia, policy, practice, and civil society on recent developments, innovations, and research in the field of restorative practice. Today, I'm in Darlington in the northeast of England, where I have the privilege of welcoming to the program the manager of Darlington Restorative Justice Hub, Andrew Hancock, and one of its most experienced and prominent facilitators, Stephen Twist. Thanks so much for joining us this morning, guys. Thank you. Oh, it's great to be here. So if I could start with you, Andrew, you were involved in restorative justice when you were with the Youth Offending Service prior to the development of the Restorative Justice Hub here. So can you please start by telling us a little bit about the history of restorative justice in Darlington and a little bit about your involvement with it? Yeah, um, I, I joined Youth Offending Service in Darlington about 10 years ago and I came to the role part time. I was training as a, a psychotherapist at the time. And really enjoying that work, you know, working in depth with clients for several years at times, really learning about them and supporting them in what was, you hoped, a really life-changing way. And then I worked part-time as a restorative justice worker for the Youth Offending Service. And that was my first introduction to restorative justice. And it just captured and caught my attention so much because I'd seen the transformation in the lives of clients that I'd worked with for two or three years as a therapist and it was just incredible to me that when I saw restorative justice in action how a single one-hour meeting was so powerful and so capable of transforming the lives of the participants the victim and the offender you know real permanent change lasting change came as a result of a single one-hour meeting and I couldn't believe it because you know I love therapy but it's so resource intensive it takes a long time to make those sort of changes and uh, so when I saw that yeah I was just completely hooked and really enjoyed the work and we worked over the next six or seven years we we had the opportunity to work with about 2,000 victims and offenders to give them that opportunity and, and not all of them met about um, about a third or 40 percent ended up coming together face to face but even in those cases where they didn't meet we, you know, it could really have a profound effect. The messages we relayed between them and, and the ones that did meet, just such a stunning effect. I mean, and everyone in the service was just gobsmacked, really, at the impact that this was having. So as, as we started getting results from it, the management, who were really visionary and very encouraging, very high in the process, they increasingly put more and more resources into it. So I think 
the Dalit Youth Opinion Service, I think we had one of the first restorative interventions for young people in the country in terms of an alternative to prosecution. We saw how damaging criminalising young people could be for, for minor crimes. And so we implemented a, an approach that allowed them to have an alternative to prosecution through taking responsibility, through making amends, through meeting their victim and understanding the impact their actions had. And that had, again, a huge effect. And over the next five years, we saw a, an 84% reduction in first-time entrance into the criminal justice system through implementing that process. And so it, it's just been an exciting, and, and I think the whole team developed a real passion for the work. And when you see the impact on victims as well, I mean, about halfway through that process, uh, four years into the role, my wife and I became, and our family became a victim of a, a quite horrific incident. Um, and it perpetrated by the leader of whom was a 17-year-old young man. And so after that, we lived in with a lot of distress and a lot of fear and uncomfort, and the kids were scared they weren't sleeping because of what happened. So we, my wife and I, got that opportunity to come face-to-face with the perpetrator, and his mum was there. And it was just such a profound experience for us to sit at the other side of the table then and to feel the benefits that a victim could really gain from the process as well mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and we walked out of that meeting with just our complete confidence restored you know complete peace of mind we we were just so elated we, it was like walking out on a cloud and um, because we had got genuine apology in the cold light of day when he sat opposite us you know his eyes widened he never comprehended the impact of his actions on our family and, and the pain and the distress and the sleepless nights that caused the kids and and we just never contemplated those things. And you could see when we were speaking to him, his eyes were just widening and he was genuinely shocked and uh, very sincerely remorseful. We got a real genuine apology. Um, and he, you know, he promised to tell all his mates because there was a gang of them involved. So he promised to tell all of his mates that it was proper Shan what they'd done and they needed to leave this nice family alone. And so we were able to go back and tell the kids that and... You know, it just brought total closure to it for us. So, you know, so I feel really lucky that I've got to see it from every side and really see, mm. the, you know, the, the powerful benefits that can bring. And you just can't help but become very passionate about it. So um, mm. that was that was the work in the youth offending that formed the foundation for what we then went on to do. Oh, great. Thank you very much for that, Andrew. And just for our listeners, those of you who don't speak Geordie, proper Shan translates to very unfair. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. Cheers, man. And uh, how about you, Stephen? Can you tell me a little bit about your background and how you got into restorative justice facilitation? I I trained as a mediator back in 1999 to do commercial work, really, as part of my practice working as a barrister. And um, I needed to get some experience, so I joined a a local charity, in fact, Unite, in uh, Middlesbrough, because I saw an advert for a volunteer, and ended up working with them for about 14 years, uh, taking a position as a director, a voluntary director, uh, in the latter years. When I retired from that, I thought I must have something in my life that uh, is uh, by way of voluntary work putting something back into the community, and I saw Andrew's advertisement. So I thought, well, I'll go along and see what all this is about. But of course, as soon as you meet Andrew, you get inspired and drawn in, and uh, that was the start of 
Oh, I journeyed together, wasn't it, Andrew? Yeah, yeah it was a fantastic night. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. So, Andrew, could you tell me a little bit about the developments that led to Darlington Neighborhood Resolution and now Darlington Restorative Justice Hub, and then maybe a little bit about how it works and perhaps a bit of an idea of the scale of the operation you're running as well. Mm, sure, I'll try. Um, <laughs> well, in youth offending, I think, you know, we've seen such great results and, so, as I say, so much peace of mind for those who have suffered incidents and been victims that it was really always our desire to extend that opportunity to more and more victims and we we'd always had a real hope to be able to do that and so um, two and a half years ago because of the results we'd seen in the youth offended service we were awarded a performance reward grant and um, for that work and so the partners decided to use that money to invest in in setting up a program that would offer that same opportunity to adult offenders and their victims essentially to begin with in the community. So essentially we would focus on giving low-level offenders the chance to meet their victim, to understand the impact of their actions in, in the hope that they would prevent them from reoffending again. So, so kind of at the earliest spectrum of the criminal justice mm-hmm, system, mm-hmm. a sort of preventative intervention. Um, but it worked so well for youths and the police felt that it gave youths just a great opportunity to learn those valuable lessons and they just hoped that there could be parity for adults in similar situations as well. So that's where the idea came from and of course at that time there was all um, this excitement about neighbourhood justice panels we'd seen great results from South Somerset and from Sheffield and from some of those pioneer areas who'd implemented that sort of neighbourhood justice approach um, and so we got really excited about the opportunity to, you know, not only as full-time paid members of staff doing that work, but that there was so much more value if we could include and empower the community to become involved in that work as well, to give them a say, to give them a voice, to give them the opportunity to really engage in the criminal justice process at that stage. Um, so that's, that's where the idea behind Neighbourhood Resolution came. And I got the opportunity to t- travel to visit some of those successful schemes that had been set up and to, to learn the lessons from them. And then we came back to Darlington and attempted to do the same thing. So that was um, nearly two years ago. So not quite two years ago. It'll be two, our second anniversary next month in November. So uh, yeah, November 2013, the scheme was launched and we advertised and, and we got just under 40 members of the community. Stephen was one of the prominent ones, as you say. Who, <laughs> <laughs> it was just fantastic. And we were, we were so overwhelmed and we just felt so blessed by the people that came to support this scheme, the kind of people that were attracted to do this kind of work. And so we, we trained together and we didn't quite know the process and how it would work. But we did have that passion and enthusiasm and we had those restorative principles at the core. And it's just been met with such welcome from the referring agencies, uh, essentially the police, but we, the police are our main source of referrals. Um, but we also get referrals from many council teams, housing providers, housing teams, antisocial behaviour teams, environmental health teams, and from councillors and from members of the community making self-referrals. Um, so ever since then, we, we deal with about 110, 120 cases a year. 
and generally that involves between 300 and 350 people involved in, in those sort of incidents and issues. Uh, how many volunteers do you have currently on your books? So we have uh, about 45 active uh, facilitators at the moment, community facilitators, and uh, we, we've trained in total about 85. Some have gone on to get jobs in the field. Some have really done very well in their own profession and career development because of the skills. They've, you know, they often put it down to the skills and the confidence and experience that restorative practice gave them. So there's that natural turnover. So we have about 45 active at the moment and we're currently training another 30 as we speak. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And they complete their training at the end of January. Okay. So Stephen, what's it like to be a volunteer facilitator with this scheme? It's really energising. I, I think because of the ethos, uh, the ethos that Andrew and his team bring to it. it when we started off, it was um, a small group of us sat around a scruffy table in a, uh, a dusty uh, old school hall. And it felt as if we were pioneering at that time. Since then, with it, with it growing, it's become a real community of its own. And I think that's part of the secret of Andrew's team, that we all feel that we're members of a family and uh, are making that contribution. We're relying upon each other and we are assisting each other in it. So that's uh, actually very satisfying. It's great fun as well as being very useful in the community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that, I'd love to echo that. I totally agree, Stephen, because I think... For me, it's it's not a business. It's we we hope to be agents of change in people's lives, and we very much focus on that from the start of the historic justice training that we offer our facilitators. It's very much about how can we make these principles the core of what we do and the core of how we live every day. So right from the very first session, we're talking about what does it mean to be a restorative practitioner? What does it mean to to be a community of care? What does that team ethos look like? And so we really try to create those relationships and that network of support for one another and really try to become a community together that is just like an extended family, really. That's, mm-hmm. that's how, certainly how I view everyone. Okay. It, it is, in fact, another aspect of it, uh, of the scheme, as well as assisting those outside. There is such a huge and high-level of support for people within the scheme that I think it, it is quite transformational of individuals' lives. Yeah. I really hope that sometimes we get people who, you know, we spend a lot of money on the training, we invest a lot in people, and sometimes people go through that training and then family circumstances change at the end of it and they leave. And people say, you know, isn't, isn't that hard? Don't you feel disappointed that they've left and the scheme's not benefiting from all that work that you've invested in them? But the fact is, you know, that they tell me their relationships at work have improved. They, they have a whole new approach in the way they approach clients at work. So, some of them work with patients and they, they've got a whole new approach to the way, way they work with patients. They tell me that their relationships at home with their children and their, their spouse and things have, have really changed dramatically since understanding these principles. So, I mean, I couldn't be happier at that. Um, if it's really benefited their lives and... In, in a real way, then you know, mm. I'm delighted with that. Mm. Yeah. Just I, by virtue of being trained as a yes. facilitator. Yeah. Mm. 
And some who have moved uh, away from the area have gone to work in other schemes. Yes. So it, it, it spawned a, uh, a new energy elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Mm. Okay, great. Could you tell me a little bit, Andrew, about the fact that um, what was formerly Darlington Neighborhood Resolution is now the Darlington Restorative Justice Hub? Could you describe a little bit of what you see as the significance of that change? Mm-hmm. Well, to be honest, our facilitators went... We spent some time looking at agencies and looking at the amount of restorative practice that's being done in agencies. And while there's a lot of people that have been trained, thousands of people have been trained, those that have actually practiced restorative justice and and worked on cases and really got the passion for it and the buzz for it as well, you know, they're relatively few. We're talking about just a handful of people. And what we recognised actually was our facilitators... As, uh, not only are they really professional and skilled in their own right, but actually the experience that they have, they've really got significant experience to offer. Um, and we, I think because of the support that they're given as well, we have, for example, we have a monthly team meeting, we have monthly training events, we have monthly group supervision. So people feel really supported within that community and have that, have that chance to talk about cases and challenges that we've come across. So that, all in all, with the training, with the experience, and the amount of casework that they do, it brings really rich and valuable experience. And that experience can't always be found in the other agencies. So we really thought it would be great if we could offer their experience to other agencies who are really wanting a quality restorative intervention with, with the clients they're working with. So whereas we've traditionally taken cases ourselves and taken referrals and dealt with them in the neighbourhood, essentially, at the, at the community level, we, we've got a lot of skill among our facilitators that can really benefit the high-level offenders as well. So we speak to local prison governors and they say, look, we've got 150 people in here who would really value and like the opportunity to apologise to the victim who've had that time to consider their actions. They are remorseful. They'd like to reach out, but we just don't have anyone on the other side who can really speak to victims to offer them the opportunity to see if that would be something that would be helpful as part of their recovery. And there's a lot of moves going forward in in probation services and the community rehabilitation companies, and in the courts and the pre-sentence pilot. It's been very exciting to give victims that opportunity at that stage in the process if they'd like to to have that interaction with their offender. So the restorative hub is about taking it beyond neighbourhood resolution, beyond the low-level offences, to offer the experience that our facilitators have to those other agencies Mm -hmm. as well, so that referrals can come to us from a greater range of services, so that if they want to, um, probation can refer in, the community rehabilitation company can refer in, the secure estate can refer in, say, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like you know, there's this offender who would like this opportunity. Could you contact the victim to see if that's something that they would like um, to? So, um, and we can either take those referrals and, and have two of our facilitators do that work, or we're very happy to partner with them and have a member of staff and one of the volunteer facilitators doing that work together. So that's essentially um, how we see the hub going mm. forward and we hope that will have a, a real influence not just in criminal justice but we hope eventually have a much wider influence because I think that there's a huge role to play in dealing with customer complaints 
in the way we handle work disputes and HR issues. I think it's a wonderful, respectful, empowering approach that gives people answers and that chance for dialogue and understanding. And I think there's so many avenues in in our society that could benefit from it. So I hope eventually, you know, to widen that influence to others as mm-hmm. well and other organisations. Okay. Oh, that's really interesting. Thanks for that. Um, I'm also interested in the fact that you don't turn down cases even where there isn't really a prospect of communication between the parties. So can you tell me a little bit about the service you provide to people in that situation? Yeah. So sometimes you will get um, a victim and an offender or two parties involved in a conflict. One of them is reluctant to engage. Um, and for me, I feel it's, it's a little bit unfair for the other party that they don't get some opportunity. And the feedback that we've got is that our process, we, when we go and do an assessment, that's the first visit that we spend with a client, we spend an hour, an hour and a half, undertaking a really thorough assessment. But it's certainly not a tick box exercise. It's a very holistic process. And the feedback from both victims and offenders is that they've found that process to be very cathartic, very therapeutic in itself. Um, and not only that, but it's really helped them be clear. It's, it's helped them to recognise their own needs and what they would like and how they would like to move forward and what's important to them and what their priorities are. Mm-hmm. Um, so that clarity and the opportunity to talk to someone who's a genuine listening ear, who really does care and wants to understand... It's been such a powerful process in and of itself that, in actual fact, sometimes when we've been and we've just had that one meeting with with the person, they've actually decided after that, actually, I'm going to get together with the other party myself and just talk about what happened. Um, so it's, or, or write them a letter, you know. So it's been, so it's often initiated something for them that they've taken forward that's gone a long way towards healing the issue or resolving the issue anyway mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so um, so we think it's really worth doing okay um, in and of itself mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as, as an individual restorative process mm-hmm. and then I think there's a lot of good outcomes that can come from that work as well okay and one of the things you mentioned before was the co-facilitation model you use, whereby two volunteers deliver every case. I was wondering, Stephen, could you tell me a little bit about your experience of uh, this joint model of working? Yes, it's certainly, uh, for me, the favoured way to work. We have a, a system whereby two facilitators are allocated on the same case. They will start together, work right the way through, right to the end and be supported by the rest of the team and supervision. It means that uh, in the course of the, uh, the, the the process, they're not alone. They're able to talk about how to approach certain issues, any difficulties they may have. They're able to give each other feedback on the things that have gone right and occasionally the things that don't quite work in the facilitation. So, uh, it is really an extension of the ethos of the restorative process, having two individuals working together on the same same case. It also has a, a significant benefit of keeping um, the, the volunteers within the scheme, because itself, instead of it, the, the process being um, a stress for an individual, becomes teamwork for 
for repair. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. That, that is a very vital element of, uh, of the scheme. Mm-hmm. And what about you, Andrew? What do you see as the advantages of the joint facilitation model from a strategic point of view? I think it's just a really lovely opportunity to work together, to not feel alone. I mean, certain personalities, when you're visiting a client, it may be that there's something about you or the way you work might not gel with that particular client. It's, so it's just wonderful if, if you can both be there and support and help each other. And, and there's, there's always bound to be something of what you can offer that client between you that's going to be really meaningful for them. And as Stephen said, it's that, that opportunity to feel you're working together as a team. You're not isolated, you're not alone. To, to have the opportunity to bounce ideas off each other, to reflect on the meeting that you've had with the client. So I would say, you know, we're our own greatest teacher. If we give ourselves space and time to reflect, we can learn so much from ourselves and so much from the facilitator we're working with as well. So we always really encourage people to take a few minutes afterwards to have that process of reflection together on, you know, what what did I do that I was really proud of? What did I feel worked well there? What, what am I less confident about? And, and to ask each other those sort of questions and go through that process. I think that really, um, you learn so much from each other. And I think it's wonderful to, you know, you don't only work with one person, obviously, but the different team members work together and learn off each other and pick up skills and hints and tips from one another, from people's different styles and ways of working. So it just feels like it's a very synergistic way to work. And it feels very safe as well. They can both look out for each other and... Um, be aware of any potential risks and mm-hmm. things. It's quite a safe way of working too. Okay. The the clients also really enjoy it, don't they, Andrew? Yeah, They're um, more comfortable feeling that it's uh, a shared moment with um, w- with two facilitators rather than having the intensity of a one-on-one. So that yeah. uh, I think is another element which really recommends it as a as a process. Yeah. Okay. And just generally speaking, how would you say that your organization tends to measure success in the work that you do? I, I mean, success for us is really about the individuals that we're there to serve, really. And, you know, do they feel, what do they feel? How would they measure success? Because really, for me, that's the most important element of all. So we, we ask them questions like that. How did you feel at the outset of our work? Do you feel that the work we did with you helped you to identify your needs and what was important to you? Um, you know, were your wishes uh, identified and respected and addressed by the process? Um, so really, f- for me, it's about you know what they've personally got from it. That's what it really comes down to. But then there's other layers as well and there's, lo- there's other um, needs and priorities. So certainly for our partner agencies and they're really interested in you know has our work given those clients the skills so that they can handle conflict better in the future so so that they have much more understanding and empathy so that they're much less likely to reoffend in the future so um, are are they going to be pose less of a demand to our agency in the future so um, you know our, our partners and referring agencies are interested in that sort of data. So mm-hmm. we want to try and capture it all. But, um, you know, when it truly comes down to it, the most important priority for us is to really make sure that we give the victim the opportunity to 
express their needs and desires and to get them hopefully met through the process and to, to really be an agent in, of change in the life of an offender and help them see themselves in a different light. You know, in, there's been a lot of work and a lot of research recently on desistance and Dr. Shad Maruna in his book, Making Good, he talks about the importance of self-identity, that his research and, and a lot of research that's been done shows it, how critical that is for an offender to be able to see themselves in a different light and understand that their negative experiences can become very positive and can be very helpful for a lot of people in the future. Um, so we always try to interact with, with them, those who have offended and caused harm in the most positive and respectful way. And we really hope to reflect to them by our behavior that the potential that they've got to change and mm -hmm, different. Mm -hmm. So it's not only about them taking responsibility and understanding how their actions have harmed the, the victim of the offence, but we hope also in our interaction to show them that they are really valued as a human being and that their life, their future life, can have enormous value and potential. I mean, if you just, we, we often play the Peter Wolf video at this point in the training, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and, and uh, we hold Peter up as an example and just say, look at that one man. You know, that one meeting changed Peter's life. And because of that, because of the choices he took as a result, how many countless victims have been prevented through Peter deciding not to reoffend? But then look at the enormous work of good that he's done, the ripple effect of his actions. You know, he's then dedicated his life to going into prisons, to encouraging other offenders, to see opportunities for themselves, see a different life for themselves to make amends to their victim and understand the harm that they cause. You know, so how many victims have been prevented through that one man alone? And so it's huge. One of the quotes that I really like is, when we work with an individual, we don't just work with one person, we work with generations. We potentially are impacting the lives of their children, their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren, and we're potentially impacting the lives of everyone in the sphere of their influence as well. So it's an amazing thing to meet with one individual. And if you can make a change in one individual by the way you interact with them, and hopefully giving them a new outlook and hope about themselves, then, you know, the ripple effect of that can just be profound. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. For those who are interested, you can find <clears throat> the story of Peter Wolf on YouTube if you type in the wolf within, wolf with two O's. Um, one thing I'm interested in following up on from what you just said is that there seems to be a bit of a gulf between, on one hand, the kind of person-centered measures of success, and on the other hand, the measures of success preferred by the systems, if you will. Yes. I mean, do you find that there, that causes tension in your work at all? It can be a dichotomy. I mean, I think it's just you have to dedicate resources to monitoring performance I mean, in this day and age, people need evidence to be able to give you the funding to continue the wonderful work that you're hoping to do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and, and so hopefully, you hope it's a win-win situation and, and that everyone ultimately is really benefiting from this work. But yeah, I mean, we, we just have to find ways to demonstrate the value of what we're doing. I suppose that has benefits in itself. And, and hopefully if we... If we can really demonstrate that effectively, hopefully that makes other people around the country sit up and take notice and say, you know what, this is really worth investing in. And hopefully as we do that, you know, we'll have a much more restorative society and 
a much more caring and compassionate society and a society where there's a lot less crime and conflict in the mm-hmm. future. Okay. And you also described earlier the fact that you get many of your referrals from the police. Can you tell me a little bit about what it's like to work with the local force and the relationship that you have with them? I mean, I mean we feel really privileged in Durham because we've got a very inspiring chief constable in, in Mike Barton who is really bought into restorative justice, really sees the value of it and sees what it can offer and what, what the outcomes can be. So, and he's really trying to inculcate that feeling throughout the whole force. So genuinely, uh, not everyone gets it, and it's not everyone's preferred way of working, um, but most officers have been trained, and I think a lot of them do see some of the value that can be had, particularly for the victim, I think. Um, so we've, we've really enjoyed, we have a good relationship with the police, we really enjoy working with them, um, we, we go around at least once a year, we visit all the teams and talk to them about the work we've done and, and really try and highlight the value of what we're trying to do and, and, and put it on their radar again as a reminder that we're still here and this is the work we're still doing. Um, but in general, they've been very good, very supportive and I think we're very, very lucky to have that because you know that's a battle that we don't need to fight. It's already been fought and the Chief Constable's already for a long time trying to been trying to win hearts and minds. So, so we really enjoy it and we found them very supportive locally of, mm-hmm. of the work we do and what about you steve i guess you have to communicate with the police when you're getting referrals from them and when you're passing information back Can you tell me a little bit about how you've experienced that we make sure the referrer is involved in the process so that they are kept informed on what's going on uh, and feel a part a part ownership of of uh, what we are doing but uh, adding to what andrew said we're very lucky in having a police and crime commissioner who works cl- very closely with the chief constable. And that team has changed the ethos of policing in, in County Durham. So that we see that filtering down to local level and even to the officers who are referring cases to us. It, the result is that when we're working, we feel as if we're working in an extended team with them rather than them saying, here's a job for you, go away and do it and let us know the outcome. Okay. So you've both been working in the field for a long time now and volunteering in the field as well. I was wondering if you had a bit of a sense for some of the factors which were most important in enabling you to deliver a safe and effective practice and also some of the factors which most act as a barrier to doing so, some of the challenges that other people might face when trying to set up a similar thing to what you've set up, for example. I think a lot of the barriers are the hearts and minds, you know. There was a recent study of the European Union of comparative sentences among all the states, and Britain ranked very high on being a harsh and a punitive nation, really. And it's just really interesting to reflect on where that comes from. Where that, and, and in actual fact, does that philosophy work? Because at the same time, Britain has one of the highest rates of reoffending. So... For me, the two, I think, can go hand in hand and be quite comparable. Um, so I think there is potentially that hang em and flog em mentality and the, the lock em up and throw away the key. But I, I think what really changes people is if they're given a safe environment to reflect on their behaviour. That's not punitive. That's, you know, we're not ostracising them. Um, it's very inclusive and that's what restorative justice offers really a safe inclusive environment where people can 
let the barriers and the defences come down and genuinely reflect on the behaviour and impact it has. It's interesting that the younger people the, who are involved in the scheme, both as facilitators and as uh, uh, p- people to whom we're delivering the service, are much more engaged. And I think this is indicative of a cultural change mm-hmm. that's taking place in, the, in, in England and Wales, that we are developing now. Some might say it's a softer way. I think it's a much more apposite way of handling conflict. So it's quite interesting because you can on one hand say that there's like a cultural preference for a punitive style and subsequently a cultural aversion perhaps to restorative justice. But then that can all dissipate quite quickly when you put someone in a safe space where they can really reflect on what they've been doing. Yes, the the space is really important. Uh, Andrew and his team have training us volunteers to bring a, a totally different culture to the meeting and indeed it, it, we're seeing it much less as a meeting as, a, as an occasion when people get together without the pressure of expectations uh, with just very few responsibilities that have to be imposed on the meeting you know people behaving themselves and and being respectful to each other uh, and just talking issues through and that really creates the different culture. And I think just to come back to the earlier point you made in um, performance, and I think that's why, uh, I think that is so essential to help overcome that cultural barrier. Because if agencies can see the evidence in black and white, then, you know, there's no denying that we're really onto a good thing here and, and that it's having the results that we, we want it to have huge reductions in reoffending consistently and and I think it, what's interesting is we the home office study showed around about a, a 27% overall reduction and some were a lot higher but I think what that didn't take into account is the experience of well-trained facilitators that actually well-trained facilitators over time as their experience grows and as the scheme matures and develops the results I think we can expect the results to be substantially higher than that in the long term as well so I think that's why we really love the work that you're doing in the community of restorative researchers really helping and supporting to to really pin down that evidence and validate what's happening so that we can we, we've got a solid case we can take to other agencies to say look this and to the public this is what works this is what works and what gets the results we all want and allows us to have that safe society that we all want to have for our children and future generations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're right that the community of restorative uh, researchers has had a real impact on our scheme. That that partnership and the, the a little bit of leadership from them, from the academic resources that they provide, has been itself transformational for us. Absolutely. Okay. And Stephen, you always talk about uh, the culture of the hub and you like to talk about stuff like that. So I was wondering, would you like to add anything on that ground? Yes, it's building on what Andrew was saying about uh, the hub being open access for people referring in. It also works the other way, that it is a cultural conduit for restorative practice to go out from the hub into these other organisations. 
So what we're finding now is that the other departments within, for example, Darlington Council, the statutory authorities, the police, other organisations who have contact with us, are themselves adopting restorative practices, for example, in relation to their own internal complaints and, and grievances processes. So the culture of restorative justice is actually being disseminated throughout the community as a result of having the hub identity for our scheme. Okay. And um, just finally, in the time that I've known you, Andrew, we've had a number of fascinating discussions, but one sticks out in my mind in particular that I want to ask you about. And in that discussion, you were describing to me your philosophy around regulation of facilitators and just regulation of people's behavior more broadly by focusing on the positives and this leading to self-regulation. Could you talk a little bit about this, please? Yeah, I mean, uh, we run a training that we invested a lot of time and money in developing, and it's a, a four-month accredited advanced restorative practice training. Every week during that training, it, it, there's a session every week, and during the training, people write a weekly reflective journal. And from the very outset of the training, we really talk about the principles of restorative practice. You know, what are those principles? And what does it look like and feel like to be a restorative practitioner and to live those principles every day? So for us, it's really, really important from the start that people have that goal to become a role model themselves of restorative practice and to live restoratively every day. You know, to live those principles in the way they interact with everyone, you know, in the way they interact with family, with colleagues at work, with managers. You know, wherever they are, we hope that those principles are really important to them and that that's how they live. And then when you come, it, when it comes to the work and working with clients, it's, it flows so naturally because it's you. It's genuinely who you are and who you've become. So we talk right from the start about values. That's really important to us. Together as a group, we identify what our individual values are and what our values are as a team and as a group and how we want to work together, how we want to be together, how we want to support one another. And then we spend a lot of weeks looking in depth at those principles of restorative practice. You know, what do they mean? What do they feel like? And we get the opportunity, we, we ask people to reflect. You know, how would you like to be treated if you made a mistake, if you did something wrong? You know, what would be important for you? What would be important for your children? How would you like school and the police to respond if your child was in trouble? Um, and, and people themselves, it comes from them. You know, they lose the date and they put meat to the bones of, you know, the philosophy that they would like for themselves and their children. And, and then we decide together, well, you know, let's give this to the rest of the world. Let's give the rest of the world this opportunity as well. Because instinctively, this is actually what we all want. When we have a chance to, to really think about it and think about what we want, instinctively, we choose restorative practice. So we, we spend a lot of time giving people the opportunity to think about those principles and to embed them. And in their weekly reflective journal each week, they really take time to reflect and share examples of how they're beginning to embed those principles at home and at work and examples of, of um, where they've done that successfully, where they feel they're applying them. And, and it just grows layer upon layer, step by step, as the weeks of the training progress. Mm -hmm. Until by the end of it, you know, 
they look back on their journals from the start and they see, wow, what a journey we've been on. It's been incredibly transformational for us. And, and then we hope to be able to offer that to, to the clients we work with. And, and that focus on the positive, you know, people genuinely desire to do the right thing then. And you don't have to worry so much about the risks that they might do something wrong because it's genuinely there and it's been built carefully stage by stage. Mm-hmm. And together with their peers, we've all had a chance to see that growing within them and to read about their experience all the time. So I think that's really essential to any restorative training, that you have that foundation in place. It's a really safe and effective foundation that you then build the techniques and the skills on. But that's the most important part for me, is really embedding those principles genuinely deep inside and living them from day to day. Okay. And um, Stephen, while I've got you here, I'd like to ask you about the kind of transition from being a barrister, focusing on the adversarial side of things, to what some might view as quite diametrically opposed kind of practice in the restorative justice field. So can you tell me a little bit about your experience of that and if you have any observations of interesting aspects of that difference? Yes, Ian, it's been both a hard and an easy journey. It's difficult when you've spent... 25, 30 years working as an adversarial barrister in court and seeing courts as the only way to sort out problems. But Andrew is right, temperamentally within us, we all come to the conclusion that there's got to be a better way than going to court. And my experience of going to court is you you start with two people in battle and then you end up with two losers, generally, because courts don't really provide solutions. Uh, they're just quick fix remedies or um, uh, a judgment that nobody's terribly happy with. Um, for me, the, the process, the cultural process has been easy. Developing the skills has been difficult. But it goes further than that, because uh, my original training as a commercial mediator, I saw the, the need for going through a process and coming out at the other end with a signed agreement uh, and the whole process having been completed in accordance with the textbooks. Uh, now, as a result of being involved in Andrew's process and the, uh, that of the, uh, the Darlington scheme, I'm much more aware of the small advances that can be made in changing people's attitudes, changing cultures, changing relationships, that you don't need to see it in terms of process, getting from here to a written agreement. It's just part of a journey on which people are, people are going to sort out their differences. Once you've let go of that and the, the, the rather technical way of dealing with issues and, uh, and arguments and complaints, I think we, we do grow as as individuals and we allow people to be much more themselves rather than feel that they're being involved in a technical process of restorative justice. Mm-hmm. So for me, um, maybe I'm reflecting the slightly evangelical approach that Andrew has has shown in the course of our chat today, but I've certainly got it. And uh, that comes from somebody who has quite a a rigid, hard, adversarial background. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. And how could people find out more about your organization's activities? Yeah, absolutely. We'd, we'd, we'd love people to get in touch. They can email me at andrew.hancock at darlington.gov.uk. Is there a website? I wish there was. <laughs> uh, I think there's a passing reference to us on Darlington Council's website. We're, we're in the process of developing our own site at the moment, so... Okay, so watch this space. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'll make sure to post the information on the site when it, when it comes through. And that's all the time we have on this episode of Restorative Conversations. I'd like to thank my guests, Andrew Hancock and Stephen Twist, for their time and insight. Thanks a lot, guys. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for everyone for listening. You can search for the Community of Restorative Researchers on Facebook or LinkedIn, or email me to find out more at i.martyr, M-A-R-D-E-R, at leeds.ac.uk. Please join us for the next episode of Restorative Conversations, but until then, goodbye.